Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 4. Or you can see the text there in your bulletin in front of you. Today is a sad day. So we're coming to the end of Colossians. Colossians has been good to us. Amen. The book of Colossians ends as so many of Paul's letters do, with Paul relaying greetings on behalf of and to certain people, and then he closes the letter um, with a brief benediction written by his own hand. And so let's consider these final words of Paul's letter to the Colossians, Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. This is God's word. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before your word now, and we ask that you would help us to see what you have to teach us here in it. We pray that your spirit would come now, that your spirit would speak, that we would see Christ Jesus our Lord clearly, and Lord, that you would touch our lives and teach us how we are to walk in Christ faithfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to sections like this in Paul's letters, it can be really easy to zone out, and if you're reading it on your own, maybe reading through the New Testament, through the Bible, it's easy to either skip through the sections of the the introductions and the closings of Paul's letters, right? We want to get to the meat. We want to get to the body of the letter. And we've already done a good deal of work, right? Plowing through the body of Colossians, and it takes some work. We've successfully plowed through some dense theology and Christology, right? In in chapters 1 and 2. And we've listened to Paul's warnings to us about the mere religiosity that, that threatens to 
invade the church and invade our own lives as we seek to live in Christ. And we've received Paul's exhortations to Christian living, to live in a heavenly way, to kill sin and to put on the things of heaven, especially love, which binds all together. And we've sought to apply the Christian ethic in the various spheres and stations where we find ourselves. And now we come to this section, which is greetings and salutations, a very personal moment in the letter. And we can tend to zone out. But we zone out because it's so personal, right? Like this just has to do with Paul and the Colossians. And we don't really we, we feel like this is between him and them and it doesn't really have much to do with us. But the the reality is is it's significant because it is personal. It's significant for us because it is personal and because it's not a mere formality to the Apostle Paul. And that reveals something to us. The personal names given and the personal greetings that Paul writes here remind us that this letter to the Colossians was written to real people in a real place and time, people that were not so different from you and from me. We, the names might be a little foreign to us, some of them, some of them not so much, like Luke, right? But Archippus, we don't have many Archippuses here in our congregation. So we, tend to, we might feel disconnected. But it's, we, it's as if Paul is saying, you know, tell George I said hi. Tell Bill I said hi. Tell Kathy I said hi. Right? That's how personal these greetings are. And it's significant because it's personal. What we see here in these passages, and in ours in particular, is a window into the fellowship of the first century church. A window into life together as Paul knew it and as the church related to one another. In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book titled Life Together, he mentions these sections in Paul's letters. And he says that these sections are what he calls tokens of Christian community. They're tokens because they're visible signs of something deeper and something profound. What we might call, in doctrinal terms, the communion of the saints. And the communion of the saints is something that is not tangential to the faith. It's not something that is a side dish or something that doesn't matter, a take-it-or-leave-it kind of thing. The communion of the saints is at the very heart of Christian faith and Christian life. A whole section is devoted to it in the London Baptist Confession and other Reformed confessions. And the communion of the saints is not about praying to dead saints or lighting candles or venerating icons or any of those things. The communion of the saints is simply this, that because we are united to Jesus, we are, therefore, also united to one another. And because we have union and communion with Jesus by the Spirit, therefore, necessarily, we do have union and communion with our brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus. That's what the communion of the saints means. See, we have exchanged, as Christians, we have exchanged our independent existence that we once held on to, to an in-Christ existence, a dependent one, one in which we find our life in him. Everything we have is in him. Every spiritual blessing is in him, and we are no longer our own. 
In Christ, we live and move and have our being. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 11, Christ is all for the Christian. But he doesn't stop there, right? Do we remember how he finishes it? Christ is all and in all. This is what the communion of the saints is. I'm reminded of a song that's been in my head this last week by Depeche Mode. Your own personal Jesus. It's catchy, right? You can probably, some of you are probably singing it in your heads right now. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, and that's okay. All you need to know is that it says, your own personal Jesus. And supposedly the song wasn't really written about Jesus, actually, um, but that's another matter. Um, but it's how people think about relationship with Jesus, right? That believing gives us our own personal Jesus, And the truth is, is that yes, Christians have a personal relationship with Jesus by the Spirit. Each and every Christian does have Christ given fully to them. I have Jesus. You have Jesus personally and fully and completely. But it's not true that we get our own. We all come to the same Jesus. We're united to the same Jesus. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all, through all, and in all by the Spirit. So the same Christ that dwells in me dwells in you. The same Christ in whom I find my life has made room for all to also dwell in. This is a shared space in Christ. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12, we were all baptized into one body and made to drink of one spirit. And so union and communion with Jesus cannot be divorced from union and communion with one another. H.B. Charles Jr., a pastor, says it this way, The church is held together by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and this is why I can't be a true Christian and say, I love Jesus, I can't stand the church. If the Holy Spirit dwells in us, he will cause us to love one another. The Jesus in me will love the Jesus in you. And this profound reality is on display in Paul's greetings. What we see here is, that the reality of this union-communion dynamic is that it entails something. It compels us towards something. It compels us to do a couple things. And I I put it in, in two sections for us. It compels us to connect, and it compels us to carry. To connect and to carry. Okay, So if you're a note taker, you can mark those down. First, let's consider how union and communion with Christ compels us to connect with one another. At the most basic level, this is what Paul's doing in his greetings. He's connecting on a very personal level, as we said. He wants to connect with them more personally, and so he says, I'm going to send to you Tychicus and Onesimus to tell you everything that's going on with me, to share all the details, because guess what? They wanted to know. They cared about him that much. They wanted to know what's going on in his life, and he wanted to share 
to establish and to nurture the connection that they had, that very personal connection. And then Paul's friends, as it were, who are around him, want to jump in and say, hey, tell them that I said hi, right? Tell them I said hi. Aristarchus, oh yeah, he's right here with me in prison. He says hi. Mark, you know, Barnabas' cousin, you know him, he says hi. And Jesus, he says hi. Right? Not that Jesus. The justice Jesus, he says hi. And Luke and Demas say hi. Right? What is this revealing to us but the dynamic of a personal relationship that is being nurtured in these greetings? It's a symbol of this depth that was, was there in the relationships of the early church. And that depth of, of communion extended even beyond local churches to other churches. Look at verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter is read among you, right, have it also read in the, churches of, in the church of Laodicea and then read their letter. There's no spirit of rivalry and competition among the churches here that we can discern. There is a deep sense of connectedness and connection, and that results in sharing for mutual edification. So that dynamic of communion that we see on an individual level then extends even to the corporate level. This is the reality of this is the communion, the reality of communion with Christ and his people that is that we see as a token here is revealed as a token in these greetings. And what we also see is that this dynamic of a flourishing relationship between believers is something that must be, it must be leaned into, it must be kind of fought for. It's something that sin seeks to pull apart, right? There's this kind of force. I don't know if this is the, these are the right words, but there's kind of a, centrifugal force. Is that the right word? Blowing us apart, seeking to blow us apart and away from each other. But Christ is holding his church together. The Spirit holds his church together, countering that. And look, you know, when we think about the, the fellowship that we may have, that the world may share with each other, a lot of times that there, there can be true friendships and real, a real fellowship among people in the world. But so often it's based on worldly principles. So often it's based on worldly connections, right? These people belong with these people, right? Young people belong with young people. Old people belong with old people. Medium people belong with medium people, Right? Or single people belong with single people, married people with married people, kids with kids, all those dynamics. And then you have the status right, badges. These people belong up here. These people belong down there. There's superiority and inferiority complexes that get in the way. Right? If I have a superiority complex, it's going to get in the way of me connecting to anyone who I think is down here. But also, if I have an inferiority complex, it's going to get in the way of me connecting on a personal level with someone who I think is up here. And the, the gospel blows that apart. And Paul actually beautifully demonstrates that dynamic here in the greetings. Look at how he does that. First, we know that Paul 
who often refers to himself as, in the Greek, a doulos, right? A slave of Jesus. And that word we see appears in chapter 3, verse 23, chapter uh, verse 22, where Paul is speaking to slaves or bondservants, actual slaves and bondservants. And here in his greetings, he applies that designation or that title to Tychicus and Epaphras. He calls them sundulas, which is my basically fellow slaves, my fellow slaves in Christ, or fellow bondservants. Now, why does he apply that to them particularly? Well, who is Tychicus? He's Paul's, one of Paul's closest, most trusted ministry workers and companions. And who is Epaphras? But he's a, a church planter. He's the one who started, who started Colossae, who introduced them to the gospel. And he's working, he's planted three churches in the region. These are the great leaders the seasoned ministry workers. And Paul says, I'm sending Tychicus with Onesimus to you. And who's Onesimus? He is a slave, but a runaway slave who had run away from his master Philemon, which we'll look at in more detail in the coming sermons in Philemon. But he ran away and stole from his master. He has this checkered past He has this low status, and he's a new convert. So it's like like someone, a new convert, going on a road trip with a seasoned pastor to touch base with another church. And that church would know Tychicus and know all about him and know his credentials and respect him and honor him. And Paul says, he's a slave. Right? He's a slave but he's faithful and he's beloved. And then how does he describe Onesimus? He also is faithful and beloved. Brother, but not a slave. You see that? He doesn't call him a slave. He raises Onesimus up as he lowers the person of high standing so that they can see that they have this family bond in equality in Christ. They all stand on the same Christ. They've all come to share in the same benefits of the gospel. right? As Peter in 2 Peter says, that they've obtained a status of equal standing in Christ by the righteousness of Jesus. And this kind of gospel equality, when it is leaned into, it creates an environment where true connection can thrive across all kinds of differences when we really lean into the gospel and see how it applies to our lives, we can cast aside the things that divide the world and segment sections off from one another, and we can join into true communion. This is what Paul is demonstrating here, even in his greetings. And it's a beautiful ideal, right? It's a beautiful thing to see. The idea of Christian communion is beautiful, but we also know that it doesn't always feel so great. It doesn't always manifest itself perfectly, right? In the church, we will have tribulation. In the church, we will have disconnection. We know that's a reality. Many of us have experienced disconnection in the church 
and loss and hurt from individuals and from churches, right? In this individual level and on the corporate level. And we see kind of a token of that reality in Demas. Verse 14, Paul says, Demas greets you. But we know later in Paul's later writings in 2 Timothy 4.10, we learn that Paul says, Demas, he fell in love with this present world, and he deserted me. He's no longer with me. And we don't hear of him again. And so Demas is kind of this sad reminder of how sin and brokenness can invade and infect the fellowship of the church, and that there can be disconnection and brokenness that we may experience that individuals and churches can become poor reflections of the reality of Christian communion. And some can become flat-out contradictions. And this is a sad reality in a fallen world. When sin is left to fester and to grow, and when that fellowship is not fought for, it can lead to this. It's, for any of you who have tried, I know it's, it's a hard thing to keep indoor plants thriving. Most choose the plastic ones that look real. I think that's a good idea. My wife's pretty good at keeping indoor plants going. But sometimes, you know, you notice that a plant is going downhill. You kind of can see it happening before it's gone. And you look at it and you think, what is the problem here? It's got everything it needs. It's got the light. It's, got, it's placed in the right spot. It's got the soil. It's being watered. And then you realize that the problem wasn't with the plant the whole time. The problem is that it's being attacked from the outside, usually from one of my daughters. <laughs> right? or, or some kind of insect, the aphids or whatever it may be, can contribute to the crumbling of that plant to to its dying. And this is what sin can do when left unchecked in the fellowship. This is what pride can do when left unchecked. And division can do these things. It can lead to disconnection. Demas is a a token, a symbol of that sober reality and that warning. But we also see another sign of a different end That can be when disconnection happens. We see that in Mark. Verse 10, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, greets you, Paul says. And he's one of the three Jewish brothers, Paul mentions, that were a comfort to him. Now, Mark and Paul were not always close. If uh, if you've read Acts, you will come across a story in which Mark is kind of the cause of a really intense split between Paul and his very close friend who suffered with him and ministered with him, Barnabas. These guys were close. They went through stuff together. And then they were broken apart by this intense, sharp disagreement over Mark. Because Barnabas is related to Mark. And Barnabas wants to take Mark along with them because he, he, did, he did go with them previously. But he didn't persevere in the work. He left at a crucial moment. And Paul says, I can't trust him. He didn't follow through. I don't want to bring him. And they got into this sharp, 
disagreement, and it says that they departed from each other and went their own ways. And so Mark and Paul experienced disconnection. And yet we see here in this passage that it didn't last. Verse 10, he says, If Mark comes to you, welcome him. You've received instructions about him. Maybe they knew the story and they were skeptical of Mark. But they were restored. They were brought back together. He says, he's my fellow worker. He's been a comfort to me. It's a beautiful picture of what Paul has already exhorted the church to do, which is to put on love, to bear with one another, to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. That has been enacted. We just didn't get to see the story. We didn't get to hear the conversation. And so communion with Christ, union and communion with Christ, leads us into connection a, to pursuing true, deep, meaningful, personal connections with one another, crossing barriers that normally divide and separate. And though sin may disconnect us, the Spirit's work is to bring us together, right? The Christ who indwells us is the one who unifies heaven and earth as we read in Philippians. The great unifier dwells in our midst. He's the one holding us together. And so we will seek connection with one another and seek to maintain it at all costs. And the second thing we see is that this union and communion compels us not only to connect, but also to carry. To carry each other. To hold each other up. See, Christian communion, it replaces this idea of self-sufficiency with true interdependence of body life. Simply put, the Bible says we need each other, whether we think we do or not. The eye shouldn't say to the hand, I have no need of you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, "nor, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Bruce Milne, I think that's how you pronounce his name, some random Baptist dude who wrote a Christian book, which I was given a long time ago. I don't know the guy, but maybe he's, he's weird. But here you go. Here's a quote from him. This quote is, is great because he says, he says this. He says that, the, that there is a form of Christian teaching out there, and he's referring to a kind of holiness teaching that sets forth the Christian ideal in terms of what one might describe as the omnicompetent individual. And I just love that title, right? The omnicompetent individual. And he describes that in this way. The individual of all-around spiritual competence who is able to cope with any pressure, to meet every obstacle, to deal with every situation, and to experience a life of unbroken victory over sin and Satan. Wow. And sometimes that's how we think of what of the standard of the Christian life. That's what God expects from us. That's what we should be. Omnicompetent, self-sufficient pilgrims. And yet if you read the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, you notice Christian didn't stay alone very long. In fact, he needed someone to walk with him, faithful and hopeful, all the way to the end. And he needed, I believe it was hopeful, to carry him through the waters, to tell him the ground is good. We can do it. Paul did not regard himself as an omnicompetent individual. 
he knew he needed people. He needed these fellow workers that he names here. Tychicus, especially, he depended upon him. He appears in Acts 20, Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, Titus. Tychicus was Paul's boy. He depended upon him. He was especially reliable. And that reveals something about Christian communion that even though we are united to one another, God gives us particular people too. There might be someone in your life, and maybe you don't have this person in your life, but it's someone to pray for. Stick around. Press into the fellowship because there are people who could come into your life that may just, that, that have just never not been there for you, that just won't not be there for you. They will be there. They will be there to serve. They will be there to reach out when you need it. This is a, a particular, special, sweet gift that God can give. And some of us have experienced that. And if you have that gift, reach out to that person and commend them as Paul commends Tychicus. Commend them and give thanks for them. Or maybe you have someone in your life who's been uniquely comforting to you at a hard time. This is how Paul describes his Jewish companions. Why were they so uniquely comforting to Paul? Well, because almost all the other Jewish Christians at the time had a hard time with Paul and his ministry. It scandalized them. It was hard for them. But these three came near. They were willing to cross barriers with Paul. They were willing to be in the same room as Gentiles and have this deep fellowship with them and eat and drink with them and do things that others were uncomfortable with. And Paul said they were, they were uniquely comforting. It was probably, it's probably like him tasting a home-cooked meal is how he felt when they were around. He got to connect with them on a deep blood and water basis. That's special. Paul knew he wasn't an island. He relied on these people. He looked to them. He was carried by his friends. And then we see also that the Colossians were carried by someone. Who were they carried by? Epaphras. Epaphras carried the Colossians, Paul says, without them even knowing it. He's always struggling for you in his prayers, Paul says. He's struggling for you in his prayers. He's praying that you'll stand fully mature in the will of God, verse 12 and 13. Paul is not afraid of stealing Epaphras' reward. He wants them to know that he's praying hard for them so that the Colossians will be encouraged to know that he's got their back. He hasn't forgotten about them. Yeah, he's busy. He's a busy church planner, but he's in his, they're in his mind and heart. He's got them. And then Paul turns to the Colossians and says, remember me, my chains. Right? Carry me in your prayers. That's what intercessory prayer is. It's carrying one another. And sometimes we need to have the humility to reach out and let someone carry us in that way and say, this is what's going on. Pray for me. Help me through it. And the last thing we notice is not only was Paul carried and the Colossians carried by Epaphras, but Archippus is to be carried by the Colossians. Right? Paul doesn't say, and I say to Archippus, fulfill your ministry, which he could have said, right? He says, you all say to Archippus, fulfill your ministry. You know what he was called to. Now, encourage him in that calling. Right? Spur him on. Make sure he doesn't give up. 
So we see this web of interdependence, interconnectedness that is part and parcel of the communion of the saints. We are one body. And so we carry each other. In the words of, of, the, of you two, we get to carry each other. Right? We are one. And the Christian community can truly say that. We are one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other by our presence, by our prayers, by our words, by our deeds, or by sharing our resources like Nympha did. And so, to close, we see in this passage a token of Christian communion. That Christian communion is connected to our union and communion with the risen Christ. It cannot be separated from that. And it leads us toward, it compels us toward establishing and nurturing family bonds of fellowship, personal connections, and maintaining those connections and dispelling the things that normally divide and separate in the world. That has no place here among the people of God. And so the question for you today is, how is your love for the saints? We have this communion on display. And I just want to ask, how is your love? Because we know sin can cool our love for one another. The reality of our brokenness and the brokenness of the fellowship can cool us down in our love. But Paul says this word three times in his greetings. He says the word agapetos, which means beloved or beloved. So how's your love for your brothers and your sisters? Paul begins his letters with the word grace and he ends with the words grace, right? Grace to you and grace be with you. And the reality is, is that we will only grow in our love for one another when we see and appreciate the depth of the grace of God in our lives, how we live and move and breathe in the grace of Christ together. Right? That Christ has done the things that Paul is calling us to do, in a sense, here in these greetings. He connected with us in the deepest way possible, identifying himself with us. And he carried us through, right, those judgment waters. And he continues to carry us by his grace. And so when we realize what Christ has done for us individually, he did that for me. And then we turn to our brothers and sisters and say, he also did that and is doing that for them. Only that way can we see each other truly in the right way. Not as we are now, but as we will be. We can call each other beloved because we are in the beloved. Because his love makes us and will ultimately make us lovely on that day. And we will be together. That communion and fellowship that we see a token of here, it will be perfected. Right? It will be, all the impurities will be cleansed and taken away, and we will have a pure and joyful fellowship and bond with one another. And that bond is now, and it must be fought for now. It must be engaged 
now. It must be appreciated now. And so, brothers and sisters, don't let sin and brokenness quench the flame of your love for the church. The early church didn't have a lot, right? But they had each other. The early church experienced persecution, but that fanned the flame of their love for one another even more. And we in America, we have had it easy. And we have been rich. And we have seen how messy and messed up the church can be across America, right? And yet, Paul is calling us to look at what the church is according to Jesus, to see through the mess. And yes, some are flat-out contradictions. Some are just messy, and we have mess in our own fellowship. But how does Jesus see us, and how should we see each other in the church as agapetas, as beloved? For now, we get to nurture our connections and carry each other. I want to end with this last quote from Bonhoeffer. He wrote in tumultuous times when the gift of visible Christian fellowship was threatened at the time of, in World War II in Germany. Pastors were being carried away. Churches were being scattered. And he writes this. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brothers and sisters is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that at any day may be taken from us. That the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with fellow Christians. May God give us the eyes to see the church as Christ sees her and pursue true communion with one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this letter to the Colossians. We thank you for the grace that we have come to know in Jesus. We thank you for the bonds of communion in Christ that we share with one another as one body. Help us, Lord, to nurture those bonds. Help us to strengthen those connections, help us to carry each other as we have been carried by you in Christ, by the Spirit, Lord. Help us to extend the grace we've received to one another. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.